If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. To pave the way for human space travel... Since the 1940s, a menagerie of animals have been sent into space, including chimpanzees, dogs, and even two tortoises who orbited the moon. However, many of these animals were put under extraordinary amounts of stress, and some lost their lives. Section editor Rhiannon Davis spoke to Stephen Walker, an author whose books have covered the space race, about this tragic and forgotten side of space exploration. So Stephen, what was the first animal that was sent into space and when was it sent? Actually, the very first animal that was sent into space was in 1947. Uh, It was a fruit fly, actually a series of fruit flies, that were put in the nose cone of American-built, reconstructed, wartime German V2 rockets. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? But basically, these are the same V2 rockets that were being used in World War II by the Germans to bomb London and also to bomb Antwerp. And this is a revolutionary missile for its time. And the same people that had built these missiles were actually brought across secretly to the United States. The same Germans, many of them actually members of the Nazi party, to build these missiles also in America. And they did these tests in New Mexico. And very early on, they started testing animals in these nose cones. So basically, they started with fruit flies in 1947. And by 1948, they had a special project called Project Albert. And it was so called because this was using a series of rhesus monkeys that were all placed in the nose cones of these V2 reconstructed missiles and blasted into the skies, the upper atmosphere. All of them were called Albert. Alberts one to six, in fact, they were. And every single one of them was killed. All of them were killed. I mean, it was a horrific situation. And you think, why on earth would they want to do something like that? What would be the point of that? And we can talk a bit about why they want to do that. But this is actually how it started. Fruit flies and then monkeys. Mm. And you mentioned why they would want to do that. Before we come on to that, there is one animal that I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with, and that is Laika, the Soviet dog Laika. Can you tell us a bit about her story? Absolutely. It's an amazing and very moving story, actually. Let's just set the scene for a moment. We are in 1957. It's November the 3rd. We're at a time which could be regarded as the height of the Cold War. Two superpowers, the USSR, the Soviet Union, and the United States are facing each other across the Iron Curtain. 
And this is a time when the world is very, very divided. I mean, it seems kind of strange for us from the perspective of 2021, perhaps, but it could literally have been the case that the world could have gone Soviet, could have gone communist. And so the battleground that is being fought is not just on Earth. It's also beginning to be up in space. There is a race to populate space, first with satellites and eventually with human beings. The Soviets are ahead of the game. In October 1957, they put the first satellite called Sputnik into space, and it totally panics the Americans. It's something we talked about last time we spoke in my book, Beyond, about the first man in space. That happens in October. There's premier of the Soviet Union, a man called Khrushchev, then says, we need more of these. We need to show the Americans that we know what we're doing and we are better than they are. And basically, the Soviet Union suffered from a massive inferiority complex where America was concerned. They wanted to prove to the world that they were technologically ahead. And so what they did was within one month of this first, the world's first satellite flying around the world every 90 minutes, they put Sputnik 2, the second satellite up. The difference being that this time it contained an animal. The animal was a dog and the dog was called Laika, which means Barker. It was incredibly advanced. It was the first time a dog had been placed, any higher living organism had been placed in orbit around the world and it stunned the world. But the problem was, was the technology at the time and the race to get ahead did not exist to bring the dog home. She was given seven days of food and oxygen. She was in this tiny windowless box, basically buried inside the satellite. And round and round the planet, she was supposed to go for seven days until it all ran out and she would die in space because she couldn't come home. What actually happened was that she died from thermal exposure, from overheating of the capsule. The temperature rose to into the 40s, and she died within the first few hours. Although that was a secret that the Soviets kept for, and actually the Russians kept after that, until 2002. Can you believe it? That secret was kept. They all claimed she lasted for seven days. Half the world thought, this is amazing. This is incredible. The Soviets, are, how do they do this thing? They can't build refrigerators, let alone put dogs in space. And the American press after Sputnik called it Mutnik or Mutnik. You know, this was the big moment. But there was also a huge amount of rage and anger in the West from animal lovers and dog lovers. There were pickets, the United Nations in New York. There were demonstrations outside American embassies in many Western capitals. The National Canine Defense League in the United Kingdom called for a minute's silence for Laika. You know, it was it was every time this this star, as it were, went overhead, there was the dog inside it. And so there was actually real anger. It sort of partly fired the right way, but partly misfired in some respects. Here were the Soviets, heartless Soviets, sending lovely dogs into space who'd never volunteered for this mission and were going to die there. As it happened, the spacecraft with the dead dog inside continued amazingly to orbit the planet for another two and a half thousand times until it finally, from the force of gravity, came back into the Earth's atmosphere the following April, five months later, and the dead dog inside the satellite basically was incinerated in the incredible fierce heat of re-entry. That is like a story. And why were the Soviets so determined to keep what had really happened secret? 
They kept everything secret, Rhiannon. I mean, absolutely everything was kept secret unless there was a spectacular success. So everything about these, the space program, for want of a better word, was kept secret, partly because it was allied to the missile program. The rockets that these animals, satellites, and later humans were being sent on were basically intercontinental ballistic missiles, which capable of taking a nuclear weapon a quarter of the way around the globe, but without the bomb inside. The bomb's replaced by a dog or by a human being, in the case of Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space. So these are secret weapons, essentially. The place where they're fired from, where they're launched from, is actually the Soviet Union's top missile site. That remains secret as well. And because the Soviets have to present the fiction, if you like, the fake news, that they never do anything wrong, that everything is perfect, it's the perfect regime, it's the perfect society, it's perfectly equal, and their technology is perfect as well, what you end up with is a situation where any failure is either ruthlessly suppressed or dressed up to be a success. Laika being an example, she didn't die in the first few hours. She was meant to die in seven days, and that's what happened. And that's how they did it. That's why secrecy and essentially lying is integral. It's woven into the very fabric of the political culture that existed on that side of the Iron Curtain. And Laika, of course, isn't the only animal that's sent into space, but she is by far the most famous today. What is it about her story that has captured people's imaginations and made sure that she's the case that's still well known? Because she became so famous. She was on postage stamps absolutely everywhere. She was in all of the newspapers everywhere. The Americans at that time had not managed to get a satellite even the size of a grapefruit into space, let alone an animal inside that grapefruit. I mean, they'd fired these monkeys we talked about earlier, but these were just up and down rocket launches into the upper atmosphere. They were traveling up to about 30 or so miles up into the upper, perhaps even up to 40 miles into the upper atmosphere. This is orbit. To get into orbit, you need speed. You need about 18,000 or 17,000 miles an hour. You need to be going at the sort of speed that would get you from New York to London in a few minutes. That's the kind of speed you need to get into orbit and to stay there. Otherwise, you're going to come down pretty damn quickly. You're just like a cannonball otherwise. And the Soviets had done it. They'd done it with this animal. And of course, there's something about the dog herself that is incredibly powerful and very appealing. What people didn't realize, because it wasn't made a big deal of, or it was kept completely secret, is that the Soviets didn't send one dog into space. They sent scores of dogs into space. They sent at least 40, 45 dogs into space. Many of these dogs also died. Uh, There's an amazing story about one that went into space five times. Can you believe it? Five times they put this poor dog on top of a rocket. We don't know exactly how many dogs there were, still to this day, because it's kept secret. I mean, it's just not clear. And many of the dogs changed names. There was one dog, amazingly, it's one of my favorite dogs of all, that rebelled and actually managed to run away as she was, they're all female dogs, as she was being brought out to her rocket, she got away. She just got away and they couldn't catch her, but they had to go. The rocket was steaming on the launch pad, ready to go. So they had to find another dog. And the only dog that was there they could find was a puppy that was unlucky enough to be wandering around the staff canteen on the missile base. So they grabbed her. They grabbed the puppy, put the puppy in a strand, 10 or 15 minutes or whatever it was, after this puppy is kind of just wandering around the dustbins behind the staff. And she's in a rocket 
and she's on her way into the heavens, possibly quite literally in her case. So she was the one big rebel. All of these dogs, they started the Soviets a little later than the monkeys in America. They started in 1951. All of these dogs were grabbed from the streets of Moscow by specially trained dog catchers. They would go out, they'd grab them. And the dog catchers had to get the right kinds of dog. They had to get dogs that were light-coloured, so it would show up on the cameras inside the cockpit more easily. They had to be the right size, they had to be the right weight, because as I was saying, they're replacing essentially a bomb that would be inside the top of these missiles. Um, they had to be female because it was easier to urinate that way. They designed special kind of urination tubes and trained, literally trained these dogs how to defecate and urinate inside the capsule so they would actually be okay with what they had to do. And they had to be trained to stay still for days. So they started by chaining them into these little containers for five minutes at a time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, four hours, eight hours, until eventually some of these dogs could do 20 days at a time sitting in a small container with very little movement in a straight vest with a, you know, sometimes with a space helmet on in the early days and later on in a pressurized capsule, a sealed, hermetically sealed capsule and sort of chained in there. And they could do that without apparent protest, as I said, for nearly three weeks at a time. That's the mm. kind of training that went on in secret in Moscow. That's incredible. I'd definitely like to find out more about how the Americans train their monkeys. But before we come on to that, we've mentioned fruit flies, dogs, monkeys. What other animals have been sent into space? I mean, the variety is extraordinary. I mean, it's staggering, the variety of animals that went into space. I mean, I have a sort of list of them here. I mean, I mean, I was amazed by... First of all, let me just explain. Thousands of animals have been into space, literally thousands. And thousands, not just in the past, they continue. It's This is with us today. This is not just a Cold War story. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. But the variety is staggering. I mean, obviously, we've got dogs, monkeys, chimpanzees, fruit flies we've talked about. Um, there are jellyfish, there are cats, there are cockroaches, there are frogs, there are tortoises, moths, spiders, crickets, worms, honeybees, for God's sakes, mice, rats, snails, ants, squid. And of course, there are guinea pigs. There had to be guinea pigs as well. I mean, that I don't think, by the way, is a full sample you know, of the range. I'm sure there might be some listeners of this podcast who say, no, they were, he's missed several others that they were, and I'm sure that they have. One particular animal, which I particularly love, is called a tardigrade. I don't know if you know what that is, but a tardigrade is one of the, the hardiest creatures on the planet. It's about a millimeter or so in size. Um, and it looks very cute, actually, when you look at it under a microscope. They're sometimes known as water bears because they have little bear-like faces. These animals can exist kind of anywhere on Earth in really extreme conditions. But they're even more extraordinarily able to survive in space. And there was one famous incident in 2007 where a European space agency um, rocket took up, I think, two or 3,000 of these little tardigrades, exposed them to the outside of the spacecraft. In other words, to the full hazards of space for 12 days, and they survived in space. 
So why do scientists want to send animals to space? What's the reason behind it? Well, let's just wind the clock back for a moment and say, if I can answer the question why they wanted to, because I think there's two different stories going on here. Why did they want to? Back, why were they killing monkeys, you know, on these terrible projects and sending all these dogs in Russia? Why were they doing this with these animals back then? Well, nobody knew what would happen to human bodies in space. And it was kind of obvious that that's where things were going to be going. It was obvious in the context of the Cold War that we talked about that space was the new frontier and it could possibly be the new battleground. You know, with human piloted rocket ships flying in space against each other, and that kind of crazy world that we see in science fiction and isn't really that far away now. So there was a real sense in which human beings would end up going to space one way or the other. But who knew what would happen to a human being in space? No one had a clue. There were all sorts of fears that the circulation would stop completely, that people wouldn't be able to swallow, that they would go blind, that they would develop these terrible ulcers, that they would be exposed to unfiltered radiation from the sun and develop rapidly horrific cancers, that they would literally, their heart would stop, that they would have total atrophy of their muscles, or they couldn't paralysis, they wouldn't be able to move their muscles at all. And there were also fears about what would happen if they were on a rocket, which was accelerating to the speeds we've talked about, I mean, you know, 17,000 miles an hour, what happens to a human body in that situation? Is it crushed by the G-forces, which are incredibly powerful, so that if you weigh, I don't know, whatever you weigh, you suddenly weigh possibly up to 10 or 20 times that amount when you're actually being launched into the sky, into space. If that happens, are you crushed completely out of all recognition? They didn't know. So they had to send these animals to find out. That's why all of this push happens in the USSR, to a certain extent also in China, even then, back in the 60s, and certainly the United States, to put these animals in space. The interesting question is why they're still doing it. You know, why do they need to do this? Surely by now they know what zero G or weightless conditions do, does to the human body. And that is true. And there are lots and lots of calls for, you know, moderating the amount of this, this research that goes on. But it's now become sort of more sophisticated. There was very recently, in June of 2021, this year, uh, one of SpaceX, Elon Musk's cargo dragon vessels took some baby squid up into space um, to the International Space Station, hatchling squid. And what they were looking at are the very specifically the relationships between microbes and animal hosts, essentially. Very significant about where we think we are right now with the pandemic and so on. So this is all part of an ongoing series of experimentation, which I don't see ending for, for a long, long time. But back in the Cold War, it's all about can a human being survive this hell, what is effectively the most hostile environment ever encountered. Mm. And that's why they were sent up. And continuing to think about the Cold War then, there are such high death rates, as you've mentioned. How do the handlers feel about the prospect of sending animals essentially to their deaths? Do you know, it's really, really fascinating. When you look at the American side, um, actually, when you look at both sides, these are, they look like cold-hearted, psychopathic scientists, all of them. Um, there's a lot of black humour that goes on on the American side. Um, and it's really unpleasant to read 
from the perspective of where we are now in 2021, it's really ugly. Um, You know, these are different, we're in a different era now. And there's something really unpleasant about the sort of jokes that get made. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, A lot of these animals weren't just being tested in space. Because of these acceleration forces that we're talking about, a lot of the testing happened on these rocket sleds that they built on the ground, which would accelerate to jet aircraft speeds on the ground and then suddenly stop to see what would happen to basically organisms, to bodies that were strapped to those chairs, just in case you had to eject or something in a, in a spacecraft or coming down onto Earth, you know, through the atmosphere, whatever. They needed to know this stuff. And so they put them in these kind of nightmarish rides with names like, you know, Daisy Track and The Bopper and Snort and all kinds of horrible names. They didn't just put chimpanzees and monkeys on those most of whom died. They also put pigs on them. And uh, there are many recorded instances of little kind of labels being hung around the pigs' necks before the ride in which they were definitely going to die with the word Project Barbecue on it. And in some cases, the pigs were actually even eaten. That's not a myth after they've been smashed up at the end of a run. You know, so you get this, even the very first Project Albert that very first Project Albert flight with Albert 1 put into the nose cone of that V-2 missile, somebody had actually written on the nose cone before the flight, before the launch, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. Which actually is a slight misquotation of Shakespeare. But nevertheless, it was put on that nose cone. So you get that sort of strange, I mean, black, dark humour, which is very ugly. On the Soviet side there's much less evidence of what people actually felt and saw. But I managed to interview for my book Beyond the very last surviving chief animal handler, animal trainer of the Soviet dog program, a terrifying woman um, called Adilia Kotovskaya, who was, I mean, she was a, she was pure Soviet. She was really quite scary. Took forever to persuade her to do an interview. And then we sat down and we tried to film her in this place and that wasn't good enough and that place and that wasn't good enough. And and she kept telling me off and she kept telling my crew off the whole time. And she was really quite scary, actually. She was was right in the centre. She was actually Gagarin, the first human in space, Gagarin's doctor who did his medical just before his flight in April 1961. Terrifying figure. And, you know, she was, she said, I love dogs, she said and then consigned loads of them to their deaths one after the other. So you do get this strange double think that goes on, this really weird mismatch. And the absolute chief of the whole animal program, and indeed the human medical or aeromedical program, space medical program, was a complete sadist called Vladimir Yazdovsky, who everybody hated. I mean, I've interviewed people who worked for this guy at the Institute of Aviation and Space Medicine in Moscow in the 1950s and 60s. All of them, without exception, loathed him. They were terrified of him. And he was quite psychopathic. I mean, he has this really eerie moment where a few days before Laika was sent on her one-way mission to space, he brings Laika home. His children can play with her and give her little cuddles because she's only going to die in the next few days. And so she deserves a little bit of cuddling and some nice attention and perhaps some nice food and some walks before she's strapped into her windowless sealed capsule and blasted to her doom into space. I mean, it's psychopathic to me. It's kind of awful. So that's where the 
scientists and the engineers were on this at the time. On the public front, it's really interesting because when Like It's Sent, as I was saying, you do get these incredible protests that happen from animal lovers and dog lovers in the West in a big way, um, obviously much less so in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc of Soviet satellite countries like East Germany, because it's so controlled and it's so politically repressed. But there's some evidence that even, I believe, in Poland, there were some protests. And there's even some interviews that I've seen with people in Moscow saying, did they have to send this dog? Actually, Soviet citizens in Moscow. When the Americans sent monkeys and chimpanzees, it's kind of silent. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Dogs, but not monkeys and chimpanzees. Why is that? Is it because people know dogs, they have pets, they, there's a connection there that isn't there in the same way with monkeys and chimpanzees at that time? I don't know, but I don't see any major howling. Nobody's chaining themselves outside the United Nations and making those kinds of demonstrations in the 1950s and 60s when those monkeys are going into space, NASA monkeys later, and also the chimpanzees. And yet Jane Goodall, who is one of the great living experts on chimpanzees, famously commented that one very kind of celebrated media hit photograph of the first American chimpanzee in space called Ham, where he's eating an apple and appears to be grinning, she said, is the greatest picture of terror in a chimpanzee that I've ever seen in decades of working with chimpanzees. And this is just taken, this photograph, minutes after he'd smashed down in the Atlantic Ocean. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not working. So what do they do? They don't send humans to the moon or round the moon to get ahead of the Americans, even by two or three months. They send tortoises to the moon, two of them. Two tortoises go on a spacecraft called a Zond 5, uh, which is basically an adapted Soyuz craft, and it's fired towards the moon. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And do you think that lack of protest with monkeys being sent up by the Americans had to do with the Cold War and the fact that when the Americans sent animals, that was justified? I do really think that is. I think there is a there is the exigencies of the demands that are being made from the Cold War, everything changes. If there are reds under every bed, you know, in the classic saying, invasion of the body snatchers, you know, we're all going to go communist. Suddenly, in a war fitting, certain things are acceptable that might not otherwise be acceptable. And elements of our humanity, our kind of fundamental humanity, 
are, if you like, suppressed to a certain extent. So an American chimpanzee, I say an American chimpanzee, these chimpanzees were all stolen by animal trackers in Africa and sold to NASA for a few hundred dollars each time. But every single one, well, that's two major chimpanzee flights and lots and lots of monkey flights. I think people will make certain exceptions if it's your side in the middle of the Cold War that is launching these rockets. I mean, incredibly, there is a bizarre example of doublethink. There is a bizarre comment from one of the trainers of one of these kind of monkey, in one of these monkey flights, who actually says, these monkeys are almost volunteers. I mean, these monkeys are almost volunteers. And when you look at them, you know, in their little containers with all these wires and they're completely restrained and they all have such sad eyes. I mean, the eyes are really telling, they're really moving. They move your soul, they really do. And when you actually think there's somebody running the training program for these animals and he thinks they're almost volunteers, I mean, it's... um. It's it's an extraordinary piece of doublethink, if that's what it actually is, or self-deception. And it's also obscene, in my view. Mm. And something that I found really interesting is how the ideologies of the Cold War feeds into animals during the space race. So the Americans pick monkeys and the Soviets pick dogs. Can you talk through the reasons for why they diverge and champion different animals? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing... I mean, this is something which, which I, I just kind of feel is so fascinating because essentially, you're absolutely right. The Soviets are using dogs, lots of them, as we said before. And the Americans are fundamentally using primates. They're using monkeys and they're using chimpanzees as well. Why? Well, at bottom... What, comes, what it comes down to at bottom is that the Soviets are looking for essentially an animal that, will, that can be trained to obey, that will not rebel, that will not fight back, that will not ask questions, that will not be problematic, will not be rebellious, that will be essentially like an upstanding Soviet citizen. Or indeed, one could argue, an upstanding Soviet cosmonaut, because the cosmonauts would have no control over their vessel, nor would the dogs have any control over their vessel. That was the plan. Everything would be automated. Nor, frankly, would Soviet citizens have any control over their vessel, namely the entire USSR. I mean, that is the kind of ideology that's kind of lying, integrated in the very, woven into the DNA of this training, if you like. On the American side, there was definitely going to be much more of an element of control. The guys that were actually picked to fly these, these, these first missions were all hotshot test pilots, unlike the, the Soviet cosmonauts. So the real purpose here was to have people that could have some element of control over, they were captains of their ships, effectively, and they would accept no less. Now, to be able to do that, you need an animal that, that has something more similar to the way we are. So what they did, with the, certainly with the chimpanzee flights, and there were two of them, one an up-and-down flight in January 61 with this animal called Ham, and a second one, a remarkable one, around the world, an orbital flight with an animal called Enos in November 1961. Both of these were dress rehearsals before their respective astronaut flights. In both cases, the chimpanzees had in front of them inside their little mercury capsules, a device called a psychomotor. And a psychomotor was basically a machine with some levers in front of it. 
And the animals had to push these or rather pull these levers in response to lighting cues. If they got it wrong, they would get electric shocks on the soles of their feet, which is not what happened to the American astronauts flying exactly the same profile flights as these chimpanzees. They'd get electric shocks on the soles of their feet. If they did nothing for 35 seconds, they would continue to get an electric shock every five seconds until they responded by pulling a lever, whether right or wrong. So you could get hundreds of shocks in the course of one flight if you got it wrong as a chimpanzee. But they chose the best psychomotor performers. And Enos, particularly, a very difficult-to-handle chimpanzee. He was considered to be the brightest of the colony, whose name Enos ironically means man. Appetite, ironically, under the circumstances. A, a chimpanzee that was so full of anger against his human handlers for very justifiable reasons that in one particular case, he actually picked up a load of his feces and hurled them into the face of a visiting senator who'd come to kind of poke around the outside of his cage. This chimpanzee that could never be cuddled was an ace on the psychomotor. And in one particular test that they had to do, which would happen also in the spacecraft, the chimpanzee had to pull the lever exactly 50 times in order to get a reward, which would be a banana pellet. And in the case of Enos, he was so good that he would actually pull it 49 times and then hold his hand out ready for the banana pellet on the 50th time. He was counting, for God's sake. On his flight, this psychomotor that he was so good at got upset by the vibrations and it went wrong. And so instead of giving him a banana pellet when he got it right, which he did all the time, it gave him an electric shock. And if you read the NASA literature for the time, and I've read it, and it's completely extraordinary, I mean, fascinating, all these scientists, you know, writing their, their very kind of academic papers about these flights. What they concede is that this brilliantly intelligent, difficult-to-handle chimpanzee is trying to game the system. He's literally trying to work out what is going wrong and can he put it right? Because he knows how to do it right, perfectly. So now there's a problem with the system. There's real consciousness here. There's a conscious calculation to pull levers in the wrong order in order to game the system so that it would actually give him the banana pellets now and not the electric shocks. He got 35 electric shocks when he went around the world. When he gets down, he gets an apple. He was so angry that when he's bobbing around in splashdown in his mercury capsule, waiting for the helicopters that took an hour and 16 minutes to come and pick him up, he manages to rip off his restraint suit. He then takes off and pulls off, tears off every single one of his electrodes, which are plastered all over his body, including a rectal thermometer that's eight inches up his bottom. And then he pulls out a catheter which has a balloon inflated inside. And with the balloon still inflated, he yanks that out of his penis. That's what he does. But for that hour and 16 minutes, there are no humans yelling in his face and there are no electric shocks on the soles of his feet. He's free. It's such a tragic story, isn't it? Mm. Thinking about another animal that's been to space, this is something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will not know. I certainly didn't. It's the two tortoises who go around the moon. Can you tell us a bit about that story? I love the tortoises. 
I love the tortoises. September 1968, the American moon program is very much in full swing. We are what, you know, nine, 10 months away from Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind. And Apollo 8, which is going to fly in December 1968, is the first Apollo that will actually not land on the moon, but fly all the way around the moon. It's the first time any human being has been there. The Soviet lunar program is really falling apart by this point. I mean, it's a fascinating subject for another time in itself, but it is really falling behind. And they're doing their best to kind of lie about it, but they're not lying about it very effectively. But it is really starting to fall behind. And their rockets keep blowing up. Nothing seems to be working properly. I don't need to go into the details here. It's not working. So what do they do? They don't send humans to the moon or round the moon to get ahead of the Americans, even by two or three months. They send tortoises to the moon, two of them. Two tortoises go on a spacecraft called a Zond 5, uh, which is basically an adapted Soyuz craft, and it's fired towards the moon, along with, I think there were some worms and, and there were always fruit flies on these missions. I think there were fruit flies on that mission too, but I wouldn't swear to it. Some listeners might know better than I do, but it's certainly, they have these two tortoises, which I think are unnamed. I've been searching to try and find if they were ever even given a name. I don't think they were. And these tortoises were sent round the moon. And it is incredible, actually, um, because they went round the moon and they came back and they landed actually in the water, which is very unusual in the Indian Ocean for space, uh, Russian spacecraft, Soviet spacecraft. And when they were picked up, they had lost 10% of their body weight. It's quite extraordinary. Nobody quite knows why, although they weren't, I think there was, there was you know, they, the, the very limited amounts of kind of food and water they were given. A little side story to this, which I discovered, is that um, th this was an opportunity for the, the people that were involved in the Soviet lunar, the doomed Soviet lunar program to practice voice communications. So they had a little recorder on board the Tortoise's spacecraft that would actually you know, say, everything is fine. I am approaching the moon. It is all fine. Like this, coming back, backwards and forth to kind of stations on Earth. And this was picked up by the Jodrell Bank you know, rate satellite system we have here in the United Kingdom. And they thought the Soviets might have put a human cosmonaut or human cosmonauts around the moon in September 1968. Now, were the Soviets doing that actually to mislead the West and get ahead of Apollo 8? Or were they doing it because they were genuinely just practicing their radio communications? That truth probably exists somewhere in the deep, never-to-be-accessed archives of the Kremlin. So we've talked a lot about the Americans and the Soviets, but you mentioned China, because of course, it's not just these two countries that are sending animals into space. Can you tell us about the other nations that were sending animals up? Yes, I can. Absolutely. So basically, the um, Chinese had a, a much, much more primitive program and even more secret, if that's possible. Obviously, it was communist too, uh, but n there were not great relations at that point between the USSR and communist China. Um, this is Mao's China we're talking about now. We we know they sent up a dog or dogs, I think, in the mid-1960s. Um, but that was it for them. I think 1966 was when they sent up a dog, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But what they what we do know is, is that they that was really it for their for their kind of dog program. Interesting enough, there is, a, a, this is a truth, is that when they sent their first Taikonaut or astronaut or cosmonaut, whatever you want to call it, to space in 2003, 
uh, there were no animals on board or no dogs on board that spacecraft. But there was dog meat, definitely, on the menu because the first astronaut, the first Chinese astronaut actually talks about that quite openly, that, he, you know, they would eat dog meat when they were up there. So that's how the dogs got into space in 2003. The Chinese space program is now much bigger, obviously, and they have also just built their new space station called, or translated as the Heavenly Palace. So they've got this thing going around. No doubt they'll have animal experiments going on in there in the same way as the International Space Station does as well. Others have also gone into space. The cat, the, there was a cat put into space by the French, the only known cat to go into space in 1963. The French had to be different, didn't they? So they had to do it with a cat. No one else put cats into space. They did. The cat was called Felicette. She was purchased, she was a stray, I think, originally, purchased from a pet shop in Paris. She was trained in these things called noise boxes um, so that she would get used to the sounds of a rocket. Um, and she was fired up into space in, I think, October 1963 from a test site in Northern Africa. Um, and she was up for about 13 minutes. Uh, she survived. Um, there were a number of other cats that were trained with her. One of them went up a week after her. And when the rocket blew up on the launch pad, the cat blew up with the rocket, obviously. Felicette herself, who had electrodes implanted into her head, actually, it's quite horrific to see this, um, she was euthanized um, after her flight, as were every single one of her fellow trainee cats as well. I mean, it is incredible what we humans do to animals. I mean, I don't want to get all kind of vegan about this, but it is, it is really shocking, actually. And for benefits which are, you know... <sighs> debatable, actually. We're not talking about cancer and, 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 and saving human lives on the ground. We're talking about the adventure of space exploration, of which I'm a great, you know, I'm a great believer. I've written a book about it, for goodness sakes, in Beyond. But the reality is that there, there is a callousness about this sometimes um, and a sort of a, a, an inability to find empathy at all that I find disturbing and I I find it difficult. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so pleased to be able to do this podcast, actually, to give the animals their chance, you know, give them their voice. There are other nations that have also been up to. Iran, famously, either did or didn't send a monkey up um, as recently as 2013. Nobody quite knows if they did or didn't because they had before and after shots of the monkey, but they're quite clearly a different monkey. <laughs> So, and then subsequently they claimed that the first one was maybe a monkey that had gone up two years earlier and it had gone wrong. And this is a, and they got, somebody messed up the pictures, but who knows? Did they? Did they not? We don't actually know. The last American Russian monkey, it's really a Russian monkey, went up in 1996. Um, it was on a biological satellite called Beyond 11. And it created unbelievable controversy because two monkeys were going to go on board. I'm not sure they were squirrel monkeys or rhesus monkeys. I think they were rhesus monkeys. Two of them were going to go on board this biological satellite that would spend a couple of weeks in space with just animals on board. Um, the Americans contributed. NASA put money into this program as well. And there were tremendous protests about monkeys going. This is 1996 now. Tremendous protests about these Russian monkeys. The protests were successful at first, and Congress actually pulled its funding and stopped American 
collaboration with the Russians on this mission. But thanks to pressure coming from the other side, and interestingly, from John Glenn particularly, who was the first American in orbit, the one that went into orbit after Enos's flight in 1962. He was a really big figure at that point. He'd already run once for president of the United States. He was a senator, and he put pressure as well. And thanks to that, the funding was reinstated. America was back in business, and the monkeys went ahead on that flight. And NASA crossed its fingers and prayed that nothing would go wrong. And what happened is that something did go wrong. And after the Beyond satellite was retrieved after a couple of weeks in space, one of the monkeys died on the operating table in a routine biopsy procedure the following day. And the protests became massive. I mean, people were chaining themselves inside Washington headquarters, you know, from all sorts of animal organizations about ethical treatment of animals. And it became a big thing. And from that point on, all of the monkey flights, the primate flights, stopped. The laws got tightened. So primates did not go up, apart from maybe this Iranian thing, which had nothing to do with Russia and the United States. They stopped at that point. Obviously, the dog flights had stopped at that point. But that didn't stop still a welter of other animals um, that we've talked about, uh, from sort of the size of a mice, of mice kind of downwards, if you like. I hate to use that downwards, but you know what I mean in terms of the complexity of organisms, I suppose I mean, which were still being put into space and still are to this day. And for my final question, how can we better remember the animals that gave up their lives for space exploration? None of these animals really have much of a memorial. You know, I mean, Ham, the first chimpanzee in space, was buried in 1983 after a terrible life living in zoos and sort of dying almost of depression, really. Uh, He was buried in New Mexico, but his skeleton was donated to a medical museum. You know, others have been stuffed and they sit in entrances to museums. It's pretty horrible at the Smithsonian and Moscow museums. Felicet the cat finally got a little wooden, I think it's wooden, sculpture in 2020, which is like 60 years nearly after her flight in a university in Strasbourg, I think. I think that it's like war animals, you know, animals that were forced to fight in wars, countless of whom died in, in generations of history. And in London, certainly, we have a rather beautiful memorial to these animals in Hyde Park. I mean, it's very moving and, and I think it's very important. And, and I think in their own way, maybe at an appropriate place, maybe not a place like London, but an appropriate place like Houston or the Cape or something like that, I think there should be some sort of memorial. I do. I think there should be some sort of memorial. We, we venerate Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, and maybe rightly so. John Glenn, Alan Shepard, Yuri Gagarin that I wrote about in my book. These are kind of major heroes. Gagarin has a monument bigger than Nelson's column, for goodness sakes, in the middle of Moscow, in Gagarin Square. Why not something for the animals who paved the way, without whom maybe these people would not have gone or would have died up there or would not have been the kind of celebrated, iconic heroes if that's the right word, that they have become ever since. Why not give them their space? When they flew, they got an apple, you know, and their human successors got major parades. Um, Why not something for these animals who died in their hundreds, really, along the way, um, and give them something back? And I um, I think that would be a beautiful thing. I may be calling into the wind, but I think it would be a beautiful thing if such memorial were to be built and to exist. That was Stephen Walker. His book, Beyond 
the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space, is available to buy now. Stephen has also written a feature for BBC History magazine on the history of animals in space, which is due to be published in 2022. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.